Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway & Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is the American singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist rock star, Lenny Kravitz. He is also the head of Kravitz Design. Having long admired Steinway & Sons, Kravitz teamed up with Steinway to design the Kravitz Grand Limited Edition of 10 Model B Steinways. Learn more about it at steinway.com slash kravitzgrand. Kravitz spoke to me from his home in the Bahamas. Lenny, you play a lot of instruments. There's drums and guitar, voice, and then later bass and piano. Mm-hmm. So you're used to being your own band yes, and your own orchestrator and your own arranger, and I imagine to some degree, your own producer. Yes. So I'm curious about that process of making a record with yourself. And I understand that that's how you continue to do things, even through your 2018 album. So could you talk to me a bit about that process? Yeah. You know, I was always interested in instruments as a kid growing up. I liked moving around. I didn't want to just stay on one instrument. It really started with the piano because we had a we had a little spinet piano in our apartment in New York City when I was growing up. I used to kind of bang on that. And then my dad had a guitar, an acoustic guitar that I think my mother had purchased for him, hoping that he would learn to serenade her. That's the story I remember. That never happened. So then I, I started banging on the guitar and then drums and then bass, actually. And then voice was always going on in that. But when I went to make my first record, I couldn't afford to pay people to play on it because I didn't have a record deal or company backing me. When I made the first record, I did it on my own. And so my engineer said, why don't you just do it? I heard you playing the different instruments, just messing around. And I thought it would be boring. Like I, I, I wanted to have, you know, some kind of, not a party experience, but you know, I wanted to have people around. I wanted it to be fun. I wanted, to, I didn't want to just be me in the studio. I, I thought that would be boring, but I ended up doing it because I had no choice. And that's when it all happened. Like my sound really developed the band that you hear on my record and my records is is me i still love doing it to this day i mean i'm in the studio now as we speak working on a new album i don't lose that excitement like anytime i go into a studio and i have all of my instruments laid out there it always feels new fresh and it gives me that opportunity to play all the instruments that i love playing i don't get to do that so much on the road so when I'm making an album, you know, I get to have my time really working on the drums and, and the bass and all the different keyboards and synthesizers and pianos and, and guitars and percussion instruments. I mean, uh, uh, last night I was in the studio, I had to, uh, I had to play castanets on a track. So I, I, <laughs> I hadn't played castanets in a while. So I got my castanet groove back on. Did you rock a YouTube video for some instruction? I asked uh, my tech in the studio, I was like, do we have any castanets here? Because, I mean, how often does one put castanets on a song? But the song was, was needing it. And he, he found them in the drawer. And I, uh, 
I worked it out. You know, because when I was in, when I was in junior high school, I I was a percussionist in the school orchestra. So therefore, you know, we had to learn everything from snare drum, bass drum, timpani, xylophone, marimba, glockenspiel, auxiliary percussion as well. Exactly, which I loved. You know, I loved. So anyway. Back to your question that I can't remember you asked. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I love I, I I love playing all the different instruments. It brings me it brings me joy, and for me, it's like you know, it's like painting. It's you know, you walk into the studio, which is your canvas, mm. and you have all of these colors in front of you, which are all the different instruments. I start painting, and 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 I love that. I, I, I'm I'm glad that I have that ability. You know. I imagine, though, Lenny, that this redefines the notion of band chemistry when you are tracking with yourself. Is that a challenge in the studio and then shifting those arrangements to the road? No, in the studio, it all comes very naturally. You know, I do have Craig Ross, my my guitarist, and he, you know, he uh, and I work very closely together. We have for 29 years now. He'll play on, on several tracks as well. So that's always nice. And then, you know, I do have guests every now and again, like if I have, I don't play my own horn parts. Uh, I'm not good enough for that to play trumpet and saxophone and, and trombone. So I'll bring horn players in when I need, or one of my favorite things is when I, when I do my orchestrations and then I, I'm in the Bahamas now, so I can't do it here, but say when I'm done tracking this album, I'll decide whether it's Paris or, or New York or LA or, and I'll go hire an orchestra and, uh, you know, put the orchestra on. But as far as doing all the tracking, no, it's very easy. It's very natural for me. And then when it comes time to going on the road, then it's about teaching these incredible musicians that I am blessed to be playing with my parts. And basically I do that by giving them recordings of their part isolated. They'll work on that. And then we get together and we, you know, we put it together. What these musicians bring is that they're able to mimic my style and personality on that part, on that instrument. But then what they do is, you know, because we do also do a lot of improvisation and grooving, and that is when they then do their thing. I mean, there's always a bit of them in even mimicking me, which is great. But then I always make sure that there's musical time where everybody gets to shine and do their own thing. So it works out well. It's a really good balance. Since you mentioned your style, let's talk about it for a minute. I remember seeing that great performance of Are You Gonna Go My Way, where John Paul Jones stood in on bass. Oh, yeah. We lost our bass player. We couldn't find him. (laughs) I know you're a longtime Zeppelin fan, but I remember when I saw Jones play, I was like, well, that makes perfect sense because even on the recording, where I, I assume you played bass on that original track, that sounds like a John Paul Jones baseline. That that solo, the do 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 do. That's what's amazing. Well, first of all, I can't take credit for that. Okay, I did not play that bass part. That was when, when we did "Are You Gonna Go My Way." That's when I first Craig's first recording with me was on that album. So on on the "Are You Gonna Go My Way" album, you know, you have tracks where it's me, and then you have tracks where it's me and Craig, and then you have a couple of tracks where it's me, Craig, and and Tony Bright who was my bass player at that time, who was amazing. Definitely very well-versed in John Paul Jones and Zeppelin. And so he's the one who played on that track. And what I thought was amazing was that John Paul Jones came in to play this track. First of all, we were thinking when we lost our bass player, and that's a, that's a whole other story. He he, I don't know where he was. I think he was in Australia or somewhere. I mean, he 
He'd been kidnapped by some women. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> and something crazy happened and he wasn't even in the country. I thought, well, who could I call to do this? I mean, I'd love if John Paul Jones did it. And of course that was a fantasy and I knew that wasn't going to happen. And then someone said, well, why don't you call him? So I'm not, I'm not calling John Paul Jones. <laughs> he doesn't want to talk to me. He doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't want to play. Anyway, found his number, got his number, called him thinking that obviously this was going to not happen. And he said, of course, I'd love to do it. And I just thought that's amazing. Wow, man. Asking you shall receive. So it sounds like it worked out well for everybody. Yeah, but then when, <laughs> when John came into rehearsal and he's playing the part, and he wasn't playing it note for note at all. He was grooving it in his own way, especially in the verses. It's a little different, but it was the same you know, vibe. And then we got to that part right before the solo, and he went, do, 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 do. And I thought, how amazing that Tony was playing that uh, John Paul Jones vibe on the track and then John Paul Jones mimicked Tony and I just thought like how amazing is that I mean you could have airlifted that right out of Ramble On right yeah yeah the 70s aesthetic you have a soul aesthetic i've been chain smoking a lot of lenny kravitz in advance of this interview hearing michael jackson do the backing vocals on low was like a, a this warm hug from yeah. the past there's so much that goes in i wonder if you could speak to that amalgam of influences that it's so all over the place i'm pretty psycho with that i mean everything from you know, jazz to blues to reggae to soul to funk to classical to all kinds of rock and roll. Uh, you know, um, I'm all over the place. I grew up loving music of all kinds and I use them. Again, they're all colors in the box for me to use. And I put them together as I see fit. Um, as any as any musician does, I mean, you know, we can we can look at any of the great of the greats uh, from the Beatles to the Zeppelin to whomever uh, to the Stones to Jimmy to I don't care who you talk about, and we can hear their influences. I can I can look at it and say, see that guitar riff, uh, Jimmy was doing Curtis Mayfield, or here Zeppelin was doing uh, Willie Dixon, or this one was doing that, or I mean, you know. Uh, but it's but it's that's what we do. We we take all the things that we've heard and loved, and we throw them in the pot. And we make and then we make our own, you know, soup. Early in your career, you were Romeo Blue. Yes. What gave you the comfort and the confidence to retake your name? I knew that what I was doing was not me. I guess you know I just didn't think that I had enough vibe on my own, and I my name and. You know, I wanted to create like a persona. You know, I was I was reading the David Bowie book at the time. And, you know, I'm listening to people like Prince and 
And of course, and then, you know, there's Madonna and there's this one. Everybody has, everybody has a name, you know? And, and uh, so these friends of mine sort of nicknamed, gave me the Romeo nickname. And then I added the blue to the end, which people don't know where I got it from. I mean, it's, it's in the book that I just wrote, but basically I, I was thinking about Adrian Blue. Baloo, the, gu- the guitar player, B-E-L-E-W. And then I liked the way that sounded, Baloo, but then I changed it to just Blue and B-L-U-E. And that's, that's where it came from. Since you mentioned the memoir, part one is out. What was one of the discoveries that you made about yourself or about your own story when you sat down and said, okay, I'm going to put this out? Well, one that I actually had a very interesting life growing up as a kid. And that may sound weird to you, but, you know, I look at my life as my life. And, and, and so to me, when I was approached about writing this book, I thought, well, you know, I don't know if my story is that interesting. or what. It wasn't special to you because it was yours already. It's mine. And, and then you're reading the books of your heroes and you're seeing all of that color in there. And you're thinking, oh, my God, this is so exciting. And, da, da, da. and you just don't think that your life is that. But my life was in a different way. As far as uh, things that I got from writing the book, one of the greatest gifts I was given was, was really understanding my father's character more than I had previously and brought me a lot of peace and healing in dealing with my father's relationship. It, uh, it, was, it was the best form of therapy I could have ever had. Isn't it funny, Lenny, how our relationships with our parents continue to evolve even after they're gone. Well, that's what's amazing because my father is not here in the flesh, but he's here in spirit. And, you know, we made peace before he died. But there were still, you know, there's still things that you hold on to or, you know, judgments or feelings or whatever. And through the writing of the book and through getting to see him as a character on a page and analyzing him, I realized that he was just a man trying to make it through this life experience the best he could with, with what he had. And I really felt for him. And I started to love my father in a way that I hadn't loved him, hadn't had the opportunity to love him. But it didn't matter that he wasn't here. Do I wish he was here and that I could do it face-to-face with him? Of course. But the fact that he's not here did not stop me from developing that with him and loving him in that way and as you just said you can you still have the relationship you can if you're in tune with that you can absolutely still have the relationship uh even though they're not here you know Design, mm-hmm. a studio founded in 2003. You call it soulful elegance, 
through a natural, relaxed sense of style. I can't help but think that we could describe your music that way too. Mm -hmm. If I have a Venn diagram of music and design, what's the overlap for you? Music and design? Like how do I relate to the two? How much of music is in design? How much of design is in music? Oh, it's all it's it's all intertwined. It's one to one. Yeah, anything that I do, whether it be photography, uh, design, architecture, uh, music, whatever, even acting, it's all music. Like when I went to go do those films, you know, several years ago, I hadn't taken a class or gone back to anything. I just showed up. But to me, it's all music. It's all rhythm. It's notes. It's feel accents it's uh yeah and so when i'm designing music is always an element in it when i'm doing my mood boards for a project i'll use other photographs to inspire me but i will also use people like i was doing a a project in paris on a, on a private residence and the inspiration beside visual things was a combination of Yves Saint Laurent and Miles Davis. Now, how does that work? Well, it does. Sometimes I'll be working on something, like I'll be working on a room, and I'll say, you know what? It needs a little bit of Isaac Hayes in here. Now, <laughs> I know what that means, and my team knows what that means because they know what the Isaac Hayes aesthetic is. Soulful, warm, rich, mm. earth tones, chocolate browns, rusts, uh, deep maroons. So music is always a part of it. You know, there'll also be a piece of music that might be the theme of that house or that project or that piece of furniture. So I'll play that song over and over and over while I'm designing and it, it inspires me and keeps me on track. So you know where I'm going. Where are we going? Where are we going? <laughs> you know what we're about to get to. You have designed uh -huh. the Kravitz Grand limited edition for Steinway and Sons. Uh, that we're here talking about. Oh. Yes, sir. It's an edition of 10 Steinways. Yeah. I'm just going to hit some highlights. Okay. Macassar Ebony, 200 hours of hand carving on the rim. Fallboard inlaid with faux tortoise shell. Yes. Hand carved legs. Solid bronze cast lyre. Yes. Faux cheetah on the bench. Mm -hmm. And it comes equipped as a Spirio R. Yes. Which I've been told is the world's finest high-resolution player piano. The Spirio is phenomenal. I mean, just all the dynamics are achieved. It's beautiful. You have to hear it for yourself. Oh, I have. I love it. Oh, you yeah. have? Yeah, and what's amazing to me is to watch Steinway artists or any pianist sit down, record, and then hear themselves, right? Yes. There's a little bit of fear and there's a little bit of awe that always comes in that reaction because as pianists, we've only ever heard ourselves at the bench, right? So to even back away 10 feet yes. and hear yourself, it's, it's out of body. It's different. It is different. Yes. So the Kravitz Grand takes as its inspiration African art. Mm -hmm. filtered, maybe I won't put words in your mouth. Let's say it's filtered through an art deco aesthetic, but why don't you tell me about the inspiration? When this came about, you know, I thought about how would I make this piano reflect me at this moment? So I designed it for my piano room in my house in Paris. It's really the entry of my house and it's where my piano sits, where I play it, where I record it. And it's in this 
double story high area that is the best chamber I've ever heard. Um, I actually use it as my reverb in my studio there. We hang microphones in that area and send the instruments out through a speaker and re-record it in this area because the reverb is incredible. So it's, it's a, an incredible place to play music. You know, where I am now and, you know, especially at that time uh, when I started it, it was all about African sculpture, African art and carvings. Obviously, the original design of a piano, art deco, and then also brutalist art and furniture, which I'm very much into, you know, artists like Paul Evans, one of my favorites, who makes furniture that is incredible. Tell me about brutalism as an interior concept, because I think of, you know, I think of Le Corbusier. Yes. And I think of a lot of concrete, but tell me a bit more. I love when they, you know, artists like Paul Evans use bronze and resin and metal and just make these really bold statements, you know, anything from, I mean, you'll have to look up Paul Evans. You'll see, if you look up his furniture, you'll see, you know, these chairs that are, that are just cast in these beautiful metals and bronzes and hand done and anything from big consoles, dining tables, incredible. So I love that work. So I wanted to have all of that in the piano. So, you know, when it came down to the portions of the piano where you have an opportunity to use metal on the lyre and on the, the pedal, you know, the pedals, the rod that holds the top up, you know, I wanted that to be hand done. As you see, you know, it's got a very brutal hand done vibe on that. It started with the legs. So when I first went into Steinway, obviously I had this whole concept already, but the legs, I'd seen these carvings that inspired me for the legs. And I was like, these have got to be the legs. And yes, they're big. Yes, they're fatter than a normal leg on a piano. It could end up looking a little odd if it wasn't scaled properly, but I just knew it would work. This whole concept just came very quickly. And then of course I wanted to, you know, have this beautiful ebony for the body of the piano. And then I wanted to have it carved on top of that to apply these markings. So it was a process, but I got to tell you, you know, Steinway, you know, when we had the meeting, they, you know, they looked at me and thought, you know, this is, this is interesting, but we don't know. Of course I didn't know, you know, I've never done this before, but, and I think they were thinking, okay, well, what else do you have? That's cool. What else? (laughs) And I said, you know, I really don't have any other idea. This, this really strikes me and I really I'm passionate about this and I know that this can work. And I was also thinking about, again, uh, Yves Saint Laurent entered the picture because I, I, I didn't only see this in my place. I, I envisioned this. I was like, this would be the piano that Monsieur Saint Laurent would have in his apartment in Paris. It's mm-hmm. his aesthetic. And I knew his apartment. I'd studied his apartment. I know mm-hmm. all the furniture and art in his apartment. This would have been the perfect piano. And so I knew this would work. So once they saw that I really was sticking to this. They gave me the most incredible support and positive energy. And then uh, we went on to meet, you know, the craftspeople in the factory. Okay. How are we going to, how are we going to do this? All right, let's, let's, let's figure this out. And the process was really fun. It was beautiful. It was inspiring. And the, just the vibe in every step of the process was 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 wonderful. 
it, it's something that I will always remember and cherish. And, uh, and I have to say it's been one of the best projects I've ever worked on in my design career. And I, I was telling people that, you know, when, when you design something or when you make any, any piece of art, if you get close to what you envisioned in your mind, that's good because, you know, your mind is your mind. You can't always achieve exactly what you saw in your mind or heard in your mind. But if you get close, that's good. Then there's times where you actually get exactly what you had envisioned. And that's an even better gift. And then there's the very rare case where you exceed what you had imagined and you go beyond that. And in this situation, that is what happened. In the end, the piano came out better than I thought it would. I knew I was throwing a lot of elements together that were odd and it could have looked a little funky. It wasn't <laughs> executed right and all of the treatments and materials weren't done properly. It, it could have looked odd. It could have looked very faux and goofy. I knew that. But it came out looking elegant and soulful. Back to the soulful elegance. See, I wasn't even trying to go there. <laughs> and and uh, when I saw it in person... I, I was blown away. Well, we're excited about it. I understand that we sold one today. Yes, yes. So that's exciting. So nine or so uh, available. If people want to check it out, steinway.com slash Kravitz Grand. I should also mention, Lenny, that 1% of the retail value of the Kravitz Grand Limited Editions will go to Harlem School of the Arts, which is both a Steinway School of Distinction and one of New York City's pioneering arts institutions focused on preserving access to the arts for every child. And I understand, Lenny, that you attended HSA yourself back in the day. Which is amazing because none of us talked about any of this, you know? Yeah. Uh, they didn't know, and I didn't know. And when, when we all put this together, thinking about what we could do, it was just perfect. And I was reliving that because I was writing the memoir at the time, and I was talking about Harlem School of the Arts because... You know, I was I was a little kid and my, my mom, you know, taught me how to take the bus up Madison Avenue to get up there and go take my classes. I forget my teacher's name. I remember his face. I took guitar classes there. And it was it was a very big part of my childhood and began building my foundation in music. So I'm I'm so pleased that this is what we're doing. I look forward to next the next time I go up to New York City to visiting the school because I have not been there since I was a small child. I must have been seven years old. Well, I hope that I hope that trip happens sooner rather than yeah. later. Yes. Lenny, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for speaking with me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for your time. Thank you. All right, man. You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. Learn more about the Kravitz Grand limited edition at steinway.com slash Kravitz Grand. We heard clips from Lenny Kravitz's Are You Gonna Go My Way and A Long and Sad Goodbye on Virgin Records. Our intro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Our outro music is Lenny Kravitz performing It Ain't Over Till It's Over on Virgin. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. 
Thank you for listening.